welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and we are so excited to have Neil Gaiman on the show today. I was just talking with my niece Yay. about how much she loves Neil Gaiman before we sat down to record the interview, and I'm just so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him. It's really exciting. My niece and nephew love Neil Gaiman as well. Who doesn't love Neil Gaiman? Honestly, honestly, honestly. I'm Tavi Kowalczak, and Good Omens is one of my all-time favorite novels, which Neil co-wrote with Terry Pratchett. And also, Neil's collection of essays, The View from the Cheap Seats, is just an example of how nimble Neil Gaiman is. He can truly write about anything in any genre. On today's show... A young boy coughs up a coin, and his whole world becomes full of sinister magic. We discuss the number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, with Newbery Medal and Carnegie Award-winning author and cultural legend Neil Gaiman. And now we present to you The Ocean at the End of the Lane, Abridged. The book opens when a man returns to his childhood home after a funeral and reminisces with a neighbor about an event that happened when he was seven years old. At that age, he's living with his parents and sister, spending much of his time reading or experimenting on his chemistry set. When a boarder at the family's home tragically commits suicide, our narrator crosses paths with his 11-year-old neighbor, Letty Hempstock, who befriends him and brings him home. Letty lives in an idyllic lakeside house at the end of the lane with her mother and grandmother, but it quickly becomes clear there are darker forces at work in the neighborhood, and Letty is much older than 11. It turns out the border's death has somehow connected the neighborhood with a world inhabited by monsters and dark forces, a world that Letty and her family usually keep quite separate from the human world. A monster named Ursula becomes obsessively involved in human lives, even disguising herself as a babysitter and moving into our narrator's house. Together with Letty and her family, our narrator must fight to send the monsters back from whence they came. The Ocean at the End of the Lane explores ideas of childhood, mythology, and memory in Neil Gaiman's captivating prose and storytelling. Tavia, what do you think of this book? This book is just a complete original in every way. There's so much to say about this book, and I can't wait to jump into the conversation. Before we do, I just want to let our listeners know a little bit about the interview with Neil that's going to follow our discussion. In July of 2020, we had a spontaneous opportunity to interview Neil Gaiman, and we jumped on it. We have held the interview back because we wanted to air it to coincide with the reissue of this marvelous novel, which is coming out right now. So that's why if there's some references in the interview that seem a little discordant, that's why. But yeah, oh my God, you know, it was so amazing talking to Neil about this book. Usually we have our discussion and then talk to the author. Oh, I'm going to let you go first, Eliza, because I feel overwhelmed by everything I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited to speak with Neil, and I'm so happy to talk about it now, all these months later, and sort of reflect on it. We were so lucky to get to chat about this with him. I loved this novel. I have to admit, I'm not super familiar with Neil Gaiman's work, but this book was so special, and you can instantly tell why he's so beloved. The Ocean at the End of the Lane is so full of 
wonder and just magnificently told. It's just a really, really special book. I agree. I think that sense of wonder comes from the fact that the whole story is told through the eyes of a boy, a boy who never gets a name. We never learn this character's name. So you're so intensely involved with what he's going through with Ursula and Letty and sort of like he's at the center of all of this, you know, horrifying adventure. And yet we never learn his name. It's, I think it's one of the small genius things that Neil does in this book. Yeah. I loved the narrator and we see him both as a boy and then years, years later as a man, you know, returning to his childhood neighborhood. And I love the way that the book treated mythology and children's perspectives versus adult perspectives in the book and the way that children are able to understand and see things in a way that's totally different from the way that an adult might understand something or might even reflect on a childhood memory. It's such a clever way to sort of get inside the character's head and also portray this sort of magical world. Um, It was just, it was just very well done. Agree. I'm not even going to add. I think you said it all. I want to point out water, water everywhere. There's so many metaphors about water in this book. It's healing. It's fatal. It's comforting. It's terrifying. It's life, right? But also death. It's the way that water functions in this novel is both just a very organic part of the story and also extremely thought-provoking. I totally agree. Yeah, the way that he uses water throughout the book as this sort of like recurring motif and represents all these different forces that are sort of larger than the character is so interesting. Gaiman references a few other books throughout this book, and one of them is Alice in Wonderland, which helped me put a pin in like, oh, that's the sort of magic that's being captured in in this book is sort of a bit of the story's like energy, right? Like a window into this other world opens and the sort of magic and wonder, but also like darkness that comes through. I mean, Alice in Wonderland, there were some really mean characters in that book. And I think Ursula is mean. She's just a mean, mean spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, Eliza, excellent points. I feel like we could talk about this book forever, but I know that especially in this episode of the podcast, we are not the main event. So let's quickly get to our interview with Neil. Totally agree. Cheers. Cheers. Quick reminder, we love hearing from you. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with our book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls and stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the ocean at the end of the lane audiobook read by Neil himself. Today, we're joined by Neil Gaiman, whose novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane is available now. Welcome, Neil, to the book club girl podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Neil, I want to dive right in to talk about The Ocean at the End of the Lane. We just enjoyed reading this novel so much. For me, it was the second time, which was a very special experience. And I want to immediately talk about the seven-year-old narrator. Um, I find him to be utterly believable and totally endearing. For our listeners who might not know a bit of your personal story, would you tell us a little bit about the aspects of your childhood that may have inspired things that made it into the novelette? So 
I wanted to tell my wife, Amanda, about me and my childhood. So the narrator is absolutely me, and I have stolen from my childhood absolutely shamelessly in terms of incident. What I then didn't do was steal my family. So the mother is not really my mother. The father is not my father. I would have had two sisters at the point where that story was going on rather than just the one and stuff. So the family are kind of fictional, but the me is me. And so, you know, the me of having a seventh birthday party to which nobody comes is completely, you know, that happened to me. The deaths of some of the cats and the arrival of other cats are things that I went and stole from my life. I was very shameless in plundering the geography of my life. And actually, one of the things that started happening when I was writing this was feeling things coming back. And there were places that I had not thought of for 40 years when I was writing it that suddenly I'm phoning up my mom and saying, can I describe the area out the back of the house for you? And so you'd go out the back door and then facing us was a sort of a, a washroom and then there was a coal room and then there was this weird little outside toilet and then there were lily of the valleys growing and it was brick. And she's like, yeah, how did, how did you remember that? And I'm like, well, because I'm writing the story and I'm actually having to inhabit it. That's fantastic. I think it was in the hardcover edition you actually included a photo of you climbing down the drain pipe. And I, I yeah, when I read that scene in the book, I just flashed on that photo and I said, oh, this, this was Neil. It really was. We cut off the head of the child who was me climbing down the drain pipe in the, uh, on that photo on the back cover, which makes the photo look a lot more sinister. Um, <laughs> the goofy grin that I'm giving the camera in reality, as I head up and down my drain pipe, <laughs> just would have completely blown the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, very, very different tone. <laughs> Neil, I have a question for you. One of the lines in the book that stuck with me the most, I just read this book for the first time, so it's very fresh for me. And one of the lines that stuck with me the most is, is early on in the book. It's short, so I'm going to read it. I liked myths. They weren't adult stories and they weren't children's stories. They were better than that. They just were. And so as a writer and a storyteller, how do you think about adult stories or children's stories? And how does that inform your approach? Particularly with Ocean at the End of the Lane, that was the problem that I was grappling with every word, every paragraph and every page. I was trying to figure out for myself what I was writing and who it was for. So sometimes I'm kind of writing for myself. I wanted to make sure, for example, that the way that Ocean at the End of the Lane is constructed, you have a chapter or two of boring grown-up stuff before you get to the exciting stuff that the kids would enjoy. Because I knew that I was writing a book that really wasn't aimed at kids. And I thought, okay, a couple of chapters of boring grown-up stuff should put them off. <laughs> and if they persist, they'll get to the, the cool monsters and the weird stuff, but they're also going to be persisting into 
stuff that isn't necessarily aimed at children, even though it has a seven-year-old narrator, which is, of course, part of the problem that you get into is, well, in order for this story to work, it needs to be told by a seven-year-old. But it's not being told by a seven-year-old. It's being told by an adult from a seven-year-old perspective as he relives and remembers. So for me, I think Ocean at the End of the Lane particularly exists in a sort of strange gray area where it's absolutely intended to be an adult novel. It's absolutely for adults. It has things in it that I think some kids might like. I would have enjoyed that book in one way if I'd read it when I was seven or eight, but I probably wouldn't have got past those first couple of chapters. I would have gone, oh, this is boring grown-up stuff. Probably when I was 12, I would have enjoyed it enormously and been very puzzled by it and not quite understood the ending, but sort of marked it as something to come back to when I was a bit older. There were definitely books that I read that I knew that I was reading too early. I was an incredibly fluent reader, but that sometimes meant that you're reading way out of your depth because you do not have the life experience to process what you're reading. And of course, myths, for me, that statement about what myths are is still absolutely true. Myths I ran into when I was seven years old, I love now for the same reasons. The ones that feel right and land emotionally, whether it's Norse myths or Egyptian myths or, or whatever, or the myths of the British Isles, they make me feel a certain way. They just are. I have never read the Norse mythology, but now the next book that I want to turn to, the way you just talked about myths, it makes me want to go there. But turning back to the ocean at the end of the lane, not surprisingly, water is a significant metaphor in this book. It can be both healing and deadly. Also, magic can be both healing and deadly. How does the seven-year-old boy reckon with that complexity? I think in the same way that he's having to reckon with everything else in the adult world. I wanted to write a book which felt like when you are seven and you're trying to make sense of what adults do and what adults say, you're trying to make sense of a world that you don't know the rules to and in which magic is as likely as anything else but you still don't know the rules. So everything in Ocean has the power to hurt and to heal. The thing that gets the story rolling is a suicide. It's an adult suicide. And that's the thing that wakes up the power on the Hempstock land that is then gets involved in the rest of the story. I want to ask a little bit about Ursula. Tavia and I both when we were discussing the book yesterday, we both realized that we had highlighted different passages that ascribe Ursula's power, not to her being a monster, but to her being an adult. And so I wanted to ask if you would share how you sort of explored the power of adulthood, but also the threat of it or the violence of it through Ursula or throughout the book. I think the important thing is that adults forget what it's like to be a kid. It's very easy for adults to forget. And one of the things that adults forget most easily is the injustice of the power imbalance. You know, you've turned up here, you didn't ask to turn up, and now you're here and you're in a world that belongs to giants. And the giants have all the power. The giants can tell you when to go to bed. The giants can decide that it is your job to eat pickled beetroot 
<laughs> and if you do not eat that pickled beetroot, you are going to have to sit there until that pickled beetroot is all gone. And it is your task to sit there cutting the beetroot into tinier and tiny slivers that you are then washing down with water, trying not to taste, knowing that process is going to take you maybe half an hour and the trick is going to be not throwing up. <laughs> and you don't understand why they're doing this. It makes so much more sense for everybody to go, well, you don't like pickled beetroot. But no, they, for some reason, you have to eat the pickled beetroot. And that, for me, was adulthood. And there's this sort of point where you're a kid looking around going, I don't know why they do what they do, but they do have all the power. So I have to negotiate and survive this world. It seemed to me much more interesting that once Ursula is there, truly her power is the power of an adult over a kid, which is a monstrous power in its own right. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Neil answers more questions, and later in the show, we ask about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by the Neil Gaiman Reader by Neil Gaiman, an outstanding array, 52 pieces in all, of selected fiction from the multiple award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author Neil Gaiman, curated by his readers around the world and introduced with a foreword by Booker Prize-winning author Marlon James. It's the perfect way to dip into Neil if you've never read him before. And it's also available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Neil Gaiman, author of The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Speaking of power and children, Letty Hemstock is a very interesting character. She's an 11-year-old girl who we suspect is much older than the age she says. She has magical powers and she helps the boy. One of the things that she says in the book that really struck me was she says, nobody actually looks like what they really are on the inside. So Letty is suspected to be far older than she says. Ursula Moncton is an evil spirit in the body of a beautiful young woman. Are Lenny's words to be read as ones of wisdom or of warning? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and of explanation and also as a key to the book and perhaps also to life. Nobody looks like what they look like on the inside. We forget dealing with adults that we are dealing with small, scared children on the inside because the adults seem powerful, you know? And you look at anybody out there and you just know they don't look like they look on the inside. And by the same token, the line that Letty says about monsters being scared, that's what makes them monsters, is, you know, for me, such a key to the entire book. And, you know, it's also a key right now, I think, to some of the stresses and madnesses and injustices and awful, weird fault lines that have been stretching through the world in 2020 is, remember, the monsters are scared. Hmm. There were a few moments in the book where it seemed like maybe we got a peek at what people might really look like. I loved those descriptions of Ursula as like this flapping thing in the sky and Letty when they're under the ocean and she's, I forget how you describe her, but she's like 
lit up in some beautiful way. It was silken candles, yeah. Yes, it was beautiful. I have a different kind of question, which is about food in the book. It's, (laughs) you know, I know you mentioned the beetroot. So eating seems to be something that can be a source of stress or anxiety for the character. Like he's worried about finishing his meals and getting in trouble and eating something poisoned and and all of that. But also when he goes to the Hempstock's property and they feed him, it's very comforting for him. I loved your descriptions of honeycomb, which I've never eaten, but it made my mouth water. It sounded delicious. So I was curious if you have any food memories from your own childhood that have stayed with you. Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, there's an edition of Ocean. I don't know if it's in your edition or not, in which you actually have a recipe for the Hempstock pancakes which are basically crepes cool yes no it wasn't in my edition i'll have to find it because joe hill was interviewing me and he asked me and there's an edition with that interview in i think it's the paperback i think yeah so i think for me what i wanted to give the hempstocks was essence of grandmother and both of my grandmothers for them food was love and you were fed which meant that you were loved. And the precise ways, you know, I don't remember. I know that my mother cooked for me. For that matter, my father cooked for me, but it was never very interesting. It was never a process. For my grandparents, my grandmothers, they loved showing me what they did while they cooked. So everything went down to, uh, you know, I I can make a cheese omelet like my father's mother did. I can fry fish like my mother's mother did because I watched her dredging the fish in beaten egg and then dipping that into her flour, her seasoned flour before she put it into the pan. It's like, well, that's how you do it. And more than that, the tastes were always so very much there, sitting there in in sense memory. So trying to always give the hempstocks comfort food. And always giving them comfort food that I had personal experience of and could write about. And always making it very English, comfort food. Both of my grandmothers were amazing Jewish cooks who had very, very Jewish, Yiddish, traditional cooking. But they also were living in England. They were born in England and raised in England. So you had that there too. You'd have the shepherd's pies along with the gefilte fish. I love that part in the book where he's in the garden eating the snap peas and he says, how could something so wonderful be put in a can and become so hard? <laughs> so funny. I, I really uh, felt that one. <laughs> so talking about the boy again, the main character's memory sort of waxes and wanes throughout the book. Some details are startling specific while others, for example, we never learn whose funeral he's attending, are vague. So... You alluded to this earlier in the podcast, but what does the concept of memory mean to you in your storytelling in general? And specifically, what role did it play in The Ocean at the End of the Lane? I mean, Ocean at the End of the Lane is a book about memory and that does things to and with memory. And sometimes the ways that it plays with memory are very precise. Sometimes our narrator just doesn't, obviously knows things, but just doesn't think to tell us because he's too close. So he doesn't tell us whose funeral it is because he knows whose funeral it is and just doesn't actually need to tell us in the same way that he never tells us his name. Mm -hmm. You know, most people reading that book 
do not notice that you do not know the name of the person telling it because you don't need the name until you need to tell people about the book. Me walking around this house that I've been in for the last 10 weeks on my own, I don't need a name. <laughs> I know that it's me doing it. But I wanted to play with the idea of those memories that surface and surface in ways that mostly have to do with the fact that you, you aren't using them. And then with Ocean, of course, the stuff that starts to become very important plot-wise, especially towards the very end of the story, when you start mm -hmm. to realize, okay, well, there's, there's things that he remembers, but that he remembers wrong. Mm -hmm. And there are things that may have been taken out of his memory. So he remembers these things as best he can, but not necessarily as they happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that scene when one of the Hemstocks, I don't remember which grandmotherly character it was, but she snips from the cloth a moment in time and that was it. It was, it was gone. Yeah. Recently, the National Theater did an adaptation of Ocean at the End of the Lane. And there were things that I thought were going to be incredibly difficult to make. And they did them with such aplomb and put them on the stage. And some of them were the things with memory. And there were moments like watching old Mrs. Hempstock cutting bits out of the boy's dressing gown and burning them. But then the dressing gown was whole mm -hmm. again. And there's a sort of a wonderfulness to using magic in storytelling, not as a, and lo and behold, this thing has happened, but just making you almost doubt what you've seen and the evidence of your eyes. Mm -hmm. I love that. I have one more question about the main character, especially towards the beginning of the book. We get the sense that he's quite isolated or alone a lot of the time with his books or his laboratory in the shed. And I was curious how you thought of his isolation or, or his loneliness or his independence and how you think it either opened him up or made him vulnerable through the rest of the story and how you thought about that. I think he needed a friend. And that was the joy for me of creating Letty, hmm. was being able to give this character a friend. Even if she wasn't a friend for very long, he had a friend. And that friendship is powerful, and it's the engine that kind of drives the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love their friendship. And I love the way that he kept going back and asking for her. And you get that sense at the end of the book that he had this pull towards their farm for her, and he couldn't remember the details. But yeah, that was really beautiful. So because this is a podcast for book clubs, I want to know, other than The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which book would you recommend of yours? that book clubs turn to first? What a great question. Well, I would probably recommend The Neil Gaiman Reader. And The Neil Gaiman Reader is a book that we've done primarily because people look at me slightly desperately and say, all of your stuff is so different, where should we start? And so The Reader is a collection of over, it's, a, it's going to be a great big hefty book, and it'll have over 50 stories in it, and it will have extracts from novels, and it will have award-winning short stories and a few lesser-known ones, but all ones that were voted on by the readers. People who love my stuff on the internet just went and they got to vote what they loved. And then we got to go, okay, well, we'll take the top, I think about the top 45 stories, and we'll put them in, and plus we put extracts from novels in. Amazing. And really, it's aimed at puzzled people who don't know where to start. <laughs> and the truth is, 
everything I've written is different from everything else. So if you like Ocean at the End of the Lane, you might like Neverwhere or you might not. You might like Stardust or you might not. You might like American Gods or you might not. You might like Anansi Boys or you might not. And by the same token, if you like them, you might like the Graveyard Book or Coraline, which are children's books, but you don't know. And I don't know. Um, <laughs> so in terms of, you know, if I were a book club, I suppose the main thing I would do is ask myself what kind of book club I am and what kind of books the people in the book club like. And based on that, if they like sort of weird, horror-edged things with mysteries and myths and stuff that will make their brains go all squoggly, I would send them to American Gods if they like they like a romance if they like something that actually has happy endings and beautiful writing i'd probably send them to stardust if they like adventures with social consciences i would send them to neverwhere and so forth fantastic so something for every book club in other words very probably yes and also <laughs> if, it's, if it's a kind of book club that also has some kids in it i would definitely point them at the graveyard book i'm incredibly oh, yes. proud of the graveyard book won the Newbury Medal. Yes, it did. I was just talking about that book with my niece, who was very excited that we were going to be speaking with you. And she said that's one of her favorites. Oh, I'm so glad. I'll have to read it with her as a two-person book club. That would be um, really fun for you. Yeah. This brings us to our last question, which, as Tavia mentioned, we ask every author who appears on the podcast. And this is the question where we ask for your literary white whale. In other words, a book that you have always intended to read or that you've started reading and you just haven't gotten around to finishing it. But it's sort of your white whale. So my white whale, actually, because of the weirdness of the lockdown, I've made another stab at. And so it currently is sitting on my bedside table stabbed which is <laughs> burton's the anatomy of melancholy and, that is a wow. new one hasn't made it into the show yet and uh, you know i for a start i really think the anatomy of melancholy is a wasted title on that book i think i think the anatomy of melancholy should be a hard-boiled detective thriller from the 1940s <laughs> about you know melancholy jones and is a nightclub <laughs> singer and found dead and now our poor hero has to go and figure out the anatomy of melancholy and, <laughs> but it's gloriously written in enormous great lists and it really is kind of a book about depression but it's a book about depression filled with strange classical references written by somebody who is incapable of writing a dull sentence mm. but also incapable of writing a sentence that ends where it should <laughs> um, Burton is just going to keep on and expound and edify and grow and continue. And just as you think you're heading towards a full stop, you realize that no, you are not heading towards a full stop. <laughs> but Burton has other things he will say that will enlighten and impress and may also demonstrate things to you, things that could be demonstrated to you and to others by him the author, and it's going to keep going. And so I wind up, on the one hand, absolutely loving it while I'm reading it, and on the other hand, just wanting him to get to the point. Just get to the point. What do you, you want to say? I know you want to say something. Just say it. Please. So uh, that is my, my white whale is I'm going to finish The Anatomy of Melancholy 
And maybe toward the end, we'll find out why Melancholy Jones was indeed <laughs> found in that nightclub at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Neil, thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> it has been so great to have you on the podcast, really. You've been a very special guest. Thank you. Thank you, Davia. I've loved getting to do it. That was Neil Gaiman, whose book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, is out now. To find out more about Neil's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. We read all our reviews on the show and we just love to hear from you. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with Allison Galen about her book, Never Look Back. Please stay in touch with us between episodes. We're both on Instagram. You can find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading. And of course, the mothership at Book Club Girl. You can join in our next conversation We'll be speaking with Karen Slaughter, New York Times bestselling author of The Silent Wife. You can email us, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com, post in the comments on our Facebook group, or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, a big thank you to our producer, Caroline Quash, who produced today's episode, and to our audio editor and engineer, Samantha Doyle, both of Hangar Studios. Thank you, Caitlin Gehring, who set up the interview. And thank you, Nathan Rossborough, who recorded Neil's interview. And of course, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. We are so humbled and excited. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. Nobody came to my seventh birthday party. There was a table laid with jellies and trifles with a party hat beside each place and a birthday cake with seven candles on it in the centre of the table. The cake had a book drawn on it in icing. My mother, who had organised the party, told me that the lady at the bakery said that they had never put a book on a birthday cake before and that mostly for boys it was footballs or spaceships. I was their first book when it became obvious that nobody was coming. My mother lit the seven candles on the cake and I blew them out. I ate a slice of the cake, as did my little sister and one of her friends, both of them attending the party as observers, not participants, before they fled, giggling, to the garden. Party games had been prepared by my mother, but because nobody was there, not even my sister, none of the party games were played and I unwrapped the newspaper around the the pass-the-parcel gift myself, revealing a blue plastic Batman figure. I was sad that nobody had come to my party, but happy that I had a Batman figure, and there was a birthday present waiting to be read, a boxed set of the Narnia books, which I took upstairs. I lay on the bed and lost myself in the stories. I liked that. Books were safer than other people anyway. My parents had also given me a Best of Gilbert and Sullivan LP to add to the two that I already had. I'd loved Gilbert and Sullivan since I was three, when my father's youngest sister, my aunt, took me to see Iolanthe, a play filled with lords and fairies. 
I found the existence and nature of the fairies easier to understand than that of the lords. My aunt had died soon after, of pneumonia, in the hospital. That evening my father arrived home from work, and he brought a cardboard box with him. In the cardboard box was a soft-haired black kitten of uncertain gender, whom I immediately named Fluffy, and which I loved utterly and wholeheartedly. Fluffy slept on my bed at night. I talked to it sometimes when my little sister was not around, half expecting it to answer in a human tongue. It never did. I did not mind. The kitten was affectionate and interested and a good companion for someone whose seventh birthday party had consisted of a table with iced biscuits and a blancmange and cake and fifteen empty folding chairs. I do not remember ever asking any of the other children in my class at school why they had not come to my party. I did not need to ask them. They were not my friends, after all. They were just the people I went to school with. <laughs> 